All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, Merry Christmas. We're a little over a week out. I hope um, you are entering into the Advent season with joy and not chaos, uh, that you are um, creating some space um, spiritually, emotionally in your heart to, uh, to enter into the joy of the Advent season and not just the chaos of the, uh, the consumerism. Um, if we don't be intentional, um, this season will uh, sap our joy instead of fill it. So um, I hope this sermon series has been um, a help to you in that process. We're going to keep working through uh, the Lord's Prayer. So grab your Bibles and let's flip over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be going to the Lord's Prayer and our Bibles. We're going over to page 811 if you're using one off the chairs around you. Um, I want to remind you that, that this is the month for our special offering. Um, our goal is to raise forty thousand uh, dollars for very specific projects. We want to replace the front steps that are uh, in slow motion disintegration out there. We want to partner with R three in East St. Louis and the Restore Network to um, to help with with uh, foster and adoptive care and, and kids in crisis. And we want to continue to partner with our own members, our own family, uh, as they want to continue to go out on short term mission, East Asia, Honduras, other areas. Uh, we're, we, we had a great start last week uh, with, with the beginning of our special offering. We're about 25% of the way there. And uh, you can continue giving to this offering until the end of the year. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to pray about it. Ask the Lord how you should be involved. Because here's the thing, I, I really believe it's good for us to partner together, to do things um, that, that we can't do on our own, right? It allows us to, to be generous in ways that make significant impacts. And, and so um, this is the way we prayed about it and we want to move forward. So I would ask you to pray and ask God, how he would have you to be sacrificial to join us in it, uh, because you find your greatest joy as you participate also in the shared sacrifice. Uh, and so pray about it. Um, you have until the end of the year uh, to be part of that offering. I'll keep you updated as we go. All right, so one of the things that, that I think um, we run into in our prayer life, right? We're talking about how to have a vibrant, life-giving, refreshing, joyful prayer life. Um, which is the exact opposite of what most of us have. Honestly, most of us have distracted prayer lives. Most of us have um, kind of, uh, uh, you know, they leave us more tired than when we showed up. We, have, we feel, feel a lot of guilt about our prayer lives, like we're just not good enough. We know we're supposed to be doing better. The last thing most of us feel when we think about our prayer lives is, is life and joy and vibrancy. And, and, and man, just I, I enjoy talking with God and meeting with God. And so one of the things that, that I did at the beginning of this series weeks ago is I got on Facebook and I asked uh, people, what's a barrier? What are the key barriers that are keeping you from entering into a genuine, vibrant, life-giving experience of prayer? And, and one of the areas that I, I got back consistently were, were people saying, I just don't think it honestly makes a difference. I just don't think it makes a difference, right? Now, they had a thousand different ways of saying it, but that's the essence of what they were saying. I don't pray because I just, God's going to do what God's going to do. God's going to be God. I'm not God. Uh, I've asked for things in the past, didn't get them. Um, so, you know, I've just kind of learned this thing that, that God does what God does or God doesn't really pay attention. Or, or, and so we kind of check out. Um, and, and if we're honest, um, I think a lot of us are there. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller um, is an author who's written four books and a number of studies, and I recommend everything he's written. Um, but he wrote a book called A Praying Life. And in A Praying Life, he, he identifies this and and says there are actually two key problems in our experience with prayer. Uh, the first is naive optimism. Naive optimism is when we kind of just show up and think, uh, my plan is God's plan. 
<laughs> and God's purpose is to bless my plan. And, and as long as my plan is moving forward, I'm really cool because I feel like God and I are on the same page, right? Everything's going fine. I, everything's, all the dominoes are falling in the right direction. There are little challenges and little things, but I prayed about it and it's all working out. And, and, and there's a naive optimism. And that actually looks a lot like faith because I'm actually like bold in my prayer. And I'm like, yeah. And, um, but the reality is it, it, it's really shallow. Um, it's not life-giving, it's not vibrant, because honestly, we're not wrestling and it's not challenging us or changing us. Um, it's really, it goes along really, really well until you hit your crisis. Until you hit that first critical point at which you realize God's plan doesn't always align with your plan. That, that God doesn't always give you exactly what you ask for. That there are times that you want to move in a direction and God's like, er, you're going that way. And what often happens in that moment because we were not working with faith, we were working with naive optimism, that gives birth to the second problem Paul Miller identifies, which is cynicism. And most of us honestly are there. The period of naive optimism doesn't last very long. Cynicism. God's going to do what God's going to do. It doesn't really matter if I pray. It doesn't really matter if I bring my request before God. It doesn't really matter. God's going to do what God's going to do. So this naive optimism expects God to do whatever we want, Cynicism, God doesn't care what I want. God's going to do what God's going to do, so it doesn't really matter if I pray. Paul Miller says this in, in his book, A Praying Life. He says, the movement from naive optimism to cynicism is the new American journey. In naive optimism, we don't need to pray because everything is under control. In cynicism, we can't pray because everything's out of control and little is possible. If we're going to have vibrant life-giving, real prayer lives as followers of Christ. We need to grow out of our naive optimism. We need to grow up into a genuine faith. And we need to repent of our cynicism, of the lack of faith that has given birth uh, to, to cynicism. We have to learn how to pray with actual hope. We have to learn how to pray with genuine expectation. We need to know that our prayers matter and that our conversations with God make a difference. So that's where we're going this morning. Okay, let's take a look at our text and then we'll start unpacking it. We're looking at Matthew chapter 6 and we're going to be reading verses 5 through 18. Uh, follow along in your Bibles as I read aloud. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
All right, last week we, we took a look at this sentence, um, give us this day our daily bread. We talked about how, how Jesus is telling us that we need to be praying daily, that, that the basic necessities of life will be given to us by God, that our basic essential needs will be met daily. It's important that we pray daily for our daily bread. And we talked about how this has a, a positive effect on us, right? When, when we're in prosperity and, and we don't feel like we need to pray for our daily bread, right? I got, I got more than enough bread, right? I, everything's going well. What it does is it reminds me to be grateful. As I pray for my daily needs and I see God meeting those daily needs, it awakens within me a sense of gratitude instead of entitlement. It reminds me of the many, many blessings that God is pouring into my life that I've just become insensitive to and blind to because, because I've become self-sufficient and self-focused, right? It awakens us to gratitude, but it also frees us into generosity because as we pray, um, give us this day our daily bread, I recognize that, that my daily bread, I have plenty of it, but, but I have a surplus and there are others who, who don't. And so I give of my surplus that others might be provided for. It, it frees me in generosity and it frees me in generosity. It frees me in gratitude and it frees me in generosity. When I'm in crisis, it also has a, a powerfully um, positive effect as well. Because when I'm in crisis, what it does is it limits my focus. Right? When I'm in a, a time of crisis uh, and I'm praying daily for my daily bread. What it does is it, it gets my eyes off all of the problems I can't solve and won't be solved until we get there, right? All the stuff down the trail, all of the anxiety about how that's going to be fixed and how that's going to be provided for and how that's going to be healed. And no, no, no. It focuses you on, on your daily need and God's daily provision, which again awakens within you gratitude instead of anxiety, right? It, it allows you to grow in faith instead of in fear. Asking God for your daily bread daily is a way of practicing dependence on God. We were designed to be dependent on God, and when we practice that, we're simply being what we were created to be. That is, that is the place of our true security. That is the place of our true joy. And so praying daily for our daily bread is good for us, right? It's a prayer of dependence. I want to look at the same sentence this morning, but I want to look at it from a different angle. Last week, we talked about how this is a prayer of dependence. This week, I want to talk about how it's a prayer of expectance, that that is a prayer of, of expectancy. Um, I want you to notice something interesting about the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't know if you noticed, but it's not a question. Is it? it, it it's actually a command. Right? A little English teacher stuff going on here, right? You guys know I spent 17 years as a teacher and a principal, and, and, and this stuff's in my blood a little bit. Um, every verb has a mood. You're like, huh, who cares? Um, let me explain to you what this means, right? So, so like every verb has a mood. So, so if I say um, I walked the dog, that's the indicative mood. It's simply a mood that indicates fact, right? It is something that occurred. That verb states a fact. If, if I say, hey, did you walk the dog? That's interrogative mood. It, it means it might be yes, it might be no. I'm not sure of the factuality. I'm, 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 I'm probing to find out. That's a question-asking mood, right? Uh, and then there's the, the, the subjunctive mood, which is, um, would you walk the dog or you should walk the dog, which means that there's a, a state of reality that's not quite in line with what actually is real, right? So that mood indicates that, that, that something should or could or would be done. And then there's the imperative mood. The imperative mood is the mood of command. Walk the dog. And you know exactly who I'm talking to. You know why? Because the, the imperative mood is always second person in English, which means it's always 
the subject of the sentence is you, right? If that sentence is spoken to you, you are the subject of that sentence. The imperative mood is always in second person, and it's always the voice of command. I don't know if you've noticed, but every request in this prayer is an imperative, right? Hallowed be your name. Now, who's, who's the subject of that command? Well, God. God, hallow your name. Your kingdom come. God, bring your kingdom. Your will be done. God, get your will done. Give us this day our daily bread. God, give us our bread. Forgive us. God, forgive us. Lead us. God, lead us. This is a prayer filled with the imperative mood. It almost seems like we're not asking questions at all. It seems like we're showing up and commanding God. I mean, that's weird, right? Who are we to command God, right? All right, so at this point, I need to remind you of something that's kind of critical. We are reading a translation. This is English, right? The original Bible was not written in English. It was written in Koine Greek. Jesus was not a white man walking around speaking the king's English. He was a Middle Eastern Jewish man who spoke uh, mainly Koine Greek, also Hebrew and some Aramaic, right? He, he spoke in a different language, and the original documents are written in Koine Greek. What we're reading is a very, very good translation, right? And what that means is that there are differences in the language, and, and so I want to highlight this. Uh, because it is written in the imperative. In the Greek, these are commands. What we need to realize is that in the Greek, um, this was a very common construction. When an inferior was going to request something of a superior, they would use the imperative voice. And why this catches us off guard is that it's the exact opposite of what we do right? That makes no sense to us, right? Superiors command inferiors, right? If I've got some employees and we're going to a meeting and I'm like, hey, grab that stuff by the door. We need it for the meeting. That's a command. That's imperative, right? There's only one implied answer. It's yes, right? I'm not giving you another option. Grab the stuff by the door. We got, we got a meeting, right? Now, if you're an inferior commanding a superior, you got to add a couple words to that. Would and please, right? Hey, would would you grab that stuff by the door, please? we got a meeting, right? And there's two possible responses to that, yes or no, because an inferior doesn't have the right to command a superior. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think the Greek culture was so different from our culture that somebody with less power could command somebody with more power? Do you think in the Greek world that, that um, a commoner could command a king? Well, no, we know that's not true, even if you're not a, a history buff, right? There's never been a time at, at which commoners could command kings. That misses the, the nuance of language, which I want to get into a little bit, right? Jesus wasn't saying that we could command God. That would be um, a theologi theological idiocy uh, to try to assert. Um, so why did they use the imperative mood? Why did they use the voice of command. Well, believe it or not, in their culture, for them to use the imperative mood, when, when somebody with less power came to somebody with more power and they, and they came and they said, hey, do this thing, it was actually a sign of great respect. And it was a demonstration of real humility. Because it was their way of saying, I have a need I can't meet. But you have greater power than I do. And you can 
I have a problem that needs to be solved, and I can't solve it, but you and your greater glory can. I need what you can provide, and I need you to exercise your power on my behalf. I need you to exercise your glory for my good. I need you to use what you have that I might be blessed because without it, I cannot be blessed. Without it, my problem cannot be solved. Without it, my need cannot be met. It's an interesting construction where they come and they basically say, if you don't do it, it won't be done. See, when we come asking questions, it's very, very different, right? If we, if we approach this text and we're like, Lord, would you please give me my daily bread? Lord, would you please give me friendships? Would you please give me spiritual mentor? Would you please give me enough money that I can pay for this necessary thing? Would you please give me a car that actually runs? Would you please give me appropriate housing? Would you please take care of my children? Would you please help my marriage to thrive? Would you, would you please, when we come, and when we come with that, would you please? The danger with that is that there's always another question implied on the end of it. Would you please give me this day my daily bread if you can? Would you please this day give me my daily bread if you're interested? Would you please give me this day my daily bread if it's important enough to you, if you're not too busy? See, why I love this Greek construction, this, this linguistic nuance, is because it leads us to ask God for what we need with bold expectation. It is not presumptive. It is not disrespectful. It is just the opposite. We're saying to God, I have a need that only you can meet, and you've promised to meet it, and I'm taking you at your word. You are who you said you are, and you will do what you said you would do. You will bless me. So give me this day my daily bread. Bless me. We're not coming groveling, afraid our request may not be answered or that we may not be important enough to be noticed. We're not afraid that this is an unimportant conversation or that our need is too trivial for God to pay attention or that God's power is somehow limited and He will not answer. When we come like this, we come with our hope fully engaged and we come full of expectation. I need my daily bread and you promised my daily bread. Give me this day my daily bread. That is not a complaint. It's not an accusation. It is a bold and humble request. We are coming with a bold expectation that you can, in fact, you're the only one who can meet this need. So I'm here. I have nowhere else to go. I am here. Give me this day my daily bread. I know you will bless. So bless me. This is expectant prayer. You guys, how do we get there? 
Most of us uh, have long ago passed into a stage of cynicism in our spiritual lives and in our prayer lives that, that you know, how do we get there? How do we reawaken that sense of, of genuine expectation in our prayer, of genuine hopefulness? How do, we, how do we re-enter into this? How do we fight the cynicism that has grown in our hearts that has caused us to lock our hope deeply away where it will not be disappointed, we think, and we will not be hurt? How do we get there? All right, three things that I think this passage tells us about how we can fight the cynicism of our hearts. First, we need to ask expectantly. You're like, duh. Well done, Steve. That's a great place to start. But I don't think we can go without stating it. The reality is we ask all the time without expectancy, right? This may seem like it doesn't need to be said, but it does. When prayer becomes a duty instead of a delight, a thing we do instead of a person um, that we're meeting, we disconnect our hope from our words. We come with a lot of words, but our words aren't infused with our hope. Because we've locked our hope away in a safe place where we think it won't be disappointed and we won't be hurt. We come before God and we ask, but we don't ask with genuine expectancy because our hope is not fully present in the request. We ask, but we don't really expect God to listen or respond or bless. And our prayers become a mask covering our cynicism, right? Man, I know better than to ask and really hope that I'll answer. I've been around the block. I've grown up a little bit. I'm not, I'm not some kid full of naive optimism. I'm grown up. I'm full of cynicism, right? God, God's going to do what God's going to do. It doesn't matter if I ask. And if I ask, what if he doesn't give it to me? I'm going to be disappointed all over again. I don't know. I, it's just easier to shut that part of my heart down, to really expect, is to risk hope. It's to come before God with your hope fully engaged in your words. Sometimes we have really tricky ways of hiding our cynicism. Sometimes we hide this bad practice behind good theology. You know, God's sovereign, God's in control, God's going to do whatever God does. And so we show up in our prayers and we're basically like, hey, give me this day my daily bread. But you're God and you're going to do what you do. And if you give me my daily bread, I get my daily bread. And if you're not, well, I guess I'll figure your glory, kingdom, come. Sometimes we even tack on pious spiritual jargon on the end of our prayers. Like, Lord, will you do this thing, you know, if, you, if it's your will? Like, Wait a minute, Steve, isn't that a biblical prayer? Asking for, you know, if it's your will? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus even prayed it, right? When Jesus was in the garden and, and he was like, if this cup can pass from me, right? Give me this day my daily bread. He's coming with his request, full of urgency, full of expectancy, coming before God. If there's any other way, God, that your mission can be done, please, give me this day my daily bread, but not my will be done, but yours. All right. The difference is Jesus, his hope was fully anchored in those words. He 
wasn't using that jargon as a mask for his cynicism. He was declaring it as a statement of faith, fundamentally different. A lot of times we use it, if we're honest, as a way to just guard our hearts and mask our cynicism and lock our hope away. You know, if, oh, Lord, if it's your will, which is our way of saying, oh, if you don't do it, I'm, all right, I won't blame you. Right? Jesus, on the other hand, understood something. When we come to God asking God for our daily bread, we may not always get the answer we want because my will is not always God's will. The story I want to tell from my life isn't always the story God wants to tell from my life. And in prayer, one of the things that we are doing is wrestling with my will being aligned with His will. Your will be done. Your kingdom come in my life. Sometimes God responds to our prayers by saying yes. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> you know, you pray something and God does it, right? Holy cow. Boom. Big answer. Sometimes God answers our prayer by saying no. Now, he never really says no. He just says yes in ways we don't want him to say yes, right? Because what we're saying is, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. I think this is the daily bread I need. And he's like, nope, that's not the daily bread you need. This is the daily bread you need. He redirects us to what is better and true and good. And, and, and that's a painful and difficult process that requires us to keep our hope engaged as we rediscover the will of God in our lives, as we discover what the daily bread of God is, right? Sometimes he says no, which is really just a different kind of yes. And probably the most painful response is sometimes he just says wait. We hate that one. Give me this day my daily bread. Wait. Waiting is a unique form of spiritual suffering. We hate waiting. You know why? Because when you're waiting, what it forces you to do is to keep with your, your hope right there exposed. Man, that feels so vulnerable. To keep your hope fully engaged while you have to wait, that's painful. That's scary. You know what it requires a lot of? Faith. It requires a lot of faith. I will stay here exposed. I will stay here with my hope fully engaged. I will stay here expectant because you are who you said you are and you will do what you said you would do. I will not disengage. I will not run and hide. I will not grow cynical. I will not lie about you and pretend like I'm not. I will stay engaged. When Jesus prayed, your will be done, he was saying, your will is better than mine. The story you're going to tell is better than the story I would tell. And if the Son of God needs to pray that, man, we need to pray it too. But it's not an excuse to disengage our hope. It is not an excuse in our cynicism to stop expecting God to be God. We are to pray expectantly. Jesus taught this. Um, so in, in the Gospel of Luke... Uh, we're studying the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us about Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11. And what I love is right after Jesus teaches about the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, he then goes into this great story that talks to us specifically about this. And I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. Um, and I just want to walk through this because I think it's, man, it's so relevant. All right? So Jesus, looking at his disciples, he's just taught them about the Lord's Prayer. And he said to them, Jesus said to his disciples, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. All right, pause for a second. In this culture, 
They had to make their daily bread daily, right? They made naan, and, and um, that naan didn't last, right? I don't know how our bread lasts for months at a time. That's abnormal. Um, bread was made daily, but often what they would do is they would make the morning bread the night before, right? So that they didn't have to get up at 3 a.m. in order to prepare for breakfast. Well, this guy didn't prepare for his guests, and in this culture, hospitality is huge, Right? When someone shows up at your door, you have to be hospitable to them or you actually end up losing your standing in, in that culture, in that rep, your reputation gets hit. Right? So, so they are obligated. They've got people showing up in the middle of the night. They're showing them hospitality. He's like, I don't have bread, man. He's like, oh, welcome, welcome, welcome. And then hold on a second. He runs out the back door, runs across the field to his neighbor's house, to his friend, and he's like, hey, man, I know, I know you're more diligent than I am. And I know you made your bread for tomorrow. I need it now. Right? Come on, friend. I, need, I got guests. I have, I have to be hospitable. Right? Will you give me the bread? Give me the bread. Right? And then, I have nothing to set before them. And he will answer from within. Hey, don't bother me. The door is shut, dude. My children are now in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Right? I'm asleep, man. Leave me alone. Right? We're all comfortable and cozy in here. I tell you, though he will not get up to give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him what he needs. I love that word. Impudence. I'm an English teacher. I, I savor. I love words. Impudence. Because of his impudence. You know what that means? It means that he showed up and he was like... Hey, hey, Joe, man, Joe, come on, man, Joe, I need, I need the bread, man, I need the bread. Nah, not getting up, man, we're already in bed. Joe, 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 we need the bread, man. Come on, man, I need the bread. Joe, I need the bread, man. Come on. Because of his impudence, right? Now, this is a good friend who, who is like, man, that's enough, I'm not going to do that. This guy's like the nightmare neighbor for most of us, you know, coming in the middle of the night because of his impudence. All right, man, all right! Gets out of bed, gets the bread, gets, now shut up and leave me alone, because we need to get some sleep. Hmm. Because of his impudence, because of his expectancy. You have it, I need it. I need this blessing, and you have it, and I can't get it anywhere else. I'm not going anywhere else. Give me my daily bread. So he arises. And now listen to what Jesus says about this. Huh. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you catch what he's saying? He's saying God is honored. When you show up with impudence, with the kind of expectancy that will not be put off, 
right? He's not saying he's the reluctant dude to sleep. He's saying that's, that's, that's the wicked bad friend. If your wicked bad friend will respond like that, how do you think I'll respond? Do you think I'm going to be put off by your expectancy? Do you you think I'm... See, when we show up with our hope fully engaged, with a persistent, hopeful, urgent expectation, we honor God. We take God at His word that He is, in fact, God, and He wants to bless. This may sound like the nightmare friend to you, but God says this sounds like the perfect disciple to me. Somebody who will not be put off. Somebody whose hope is fully engaged with their request. Somebody who will show up in that kind of faith and will not leave until God gives them their daily bread. When we do that, we acknowledge you're the one with the bread and I'm not. You have what I need. I cannot provide for myself. I'm not going to slink away into the darkness and go, okay, I guess he doesn't love me. I must provide for myself. No, you're going to stand there because there's nowhere else to go. And that leads to the next point, which is we need to ask persistently. We need to ask expectantly with our hope fully engaged in our words and we need to ask persistently, right? Jesus tells us to ask for our daily bread daily. God likes us to be persistent, right? He's not like, hey, I'm so busy. Can you just file that in, in a TPS report once a month, right? Can you, just, can you just every once in a while come? No, he's like, ask for your daily bread daily, right? And, and in these verses right here that we just read, ask, and, it, and, and, and you'll get your answer, right? Seek, and you'll find Knock and it'll be opened. What is implied in each one of those is a continuation of action. It's not just, oh, I guess he didn't open. I guess I'm done. No, it's, it's knock and keep knocking. Seek and keep seeking. Ask and keep asking. There is an expectancy, that res- there's a persistency that grows out of expectancy. I expect you to respond. I expect you to bless. And because I do, I'm not going to walk away until I get it. I will take hold of you. I will wrestle you until I get the blessing you've promised to give me. Because it's in the wrestling. You're not changed. I'm changed. So we understand that in the persistency, what's happening is God is at work even when it seems like he's not. God is answering even when he's saying, wait. He's redirecting us even when it seems he says, no. Persistency is a declaration of faith that grows out of our expectancy. You have declared that you will bless. And I am here to be blessed. You ever been in a checkout line with a kid? You get up to the cash register and the aisles are loaded, right? Strategically loaded with all the candy, right? You get up there and your kid's like, can I have that? And you're thinking about a thousand things. And in that moment, you have a few thoughts that kind of rattle around, and they're like, well, it is after lunch, and man, you were great in the store today. And, and what they do is all they notice is, man, there was a moment of hesitancy. And they know what that meant. It means there's a weakness in the wall. So what do they do? Can I have it? 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 Right? They go to work. Fully expectant, fully persistent. They go to work on that weakness, right? They are going to attack. And they will not be put off. 
Because you know that's your only hope at that point is to distract them and then get them out, right? So here's a shiny thing, go, go, go. God's not trying to distract us. God isn't annoyed like we are often with our kids. He's saying we need to be more like our kids. We need to know, I need this, and you're the only one that can provide it, and I'm not going to stop until you meet my need, because I have nowhere else to go. See, it's our cynicism that causes us to feel foolish in our hope. It's our cynicism that that makes us feel foolish in coming again and again and again, asking God to meet us in our need, to provide our daily bread, to meet our basic needs. It's our cynicism that undercuts our faith and makes us cowards. So we end up asking because we're supposed to, but it's half-hearted. And it's sporadic. We need to take God at His word because that doesn't honor God. It doesn't honor His character. It doesn't honor His promises. We need to come to God with expectancy and we need to come to God with persistency and we need to come to God and ask presently the final point. You're like, what in the world does that mean? It means we need to ask with full presence. We need to be fully engaged, right? I seriously doubt the dude was standing out there, hey, can I have the bread, can I have the bread, while he's scrolling through Facebook. Oh, hey, look, so-and-so. When he was knocking on that door, you know what he was thinking about? The guests that he had at home that he had to provide bread for. That's what he was thinking about. He was He was fully present. There was an urgency and a presence in his request. We need to be present in our prayers, right? The the urgency and the importance of my daily needs, the daily needs of my family, of, of myself and of those that I love, will lead me to be fully present in the moment. A toddler's strength in the checkout line comes from their laser focus on your weakness. You know this. We need to pray with that kind of presence. We need to be engaging and asking, fully present. Because here's the thing. Sometimes when God says no, he's actually saying yes in a way that is just not intuitive to us, right? He's he's like, not going to give that thing, but I'm going to give you this thing. If we're not fully engaged, we're not even going to notice it. All we're going to see is that God didn't give us what we wanted. And we're going to walk away upset and disappointed, even though he gave us this other incredible blessing that is, in fact, better and will redirect us into even greater blessing. Right? Sometimes when he says wait, he gives us things that will strengthen our faith and encourage our hearts. But if we're not fully attuned, if we're over here doing Facebook and just asking, okay, we don't even notice. We're not there to hear. We miss the still quiet voice that often comes in that gives us genuine courage in our fear, genuine hope in our discouragement, uh, genuine, genuine joy in the midst of our sorrow. We need to be fully engaged. We need to be persistent which is why we need to fast, y'all. I don't know if you noticed, but the end of our passage says, and when you fast. Um, it doesn't say if you fast. It says, and when you fast. Now, in the Jewish culture, it was a very common thing to fast. None of the readers would have been like, what? They would have been like, yeah, of course we all fast. Today, not so much. We don't even understand what fasting is. Uh, today, most of us probably have never even practiced it. Um, what is fasting, and how does that tie in? Is, is, is fasting like the special sauce we put on top of our prayer request that somehow makes it delicious to God? Ooh, I'll take that request. Mm. 
Is it a side dish of good works that we put next to it? Like, isn't that more appealing, God? Hmm? Hmm? Look, look, got a side dish of good works. I'm asking you for this. You get the good works with it now, now, come on. All right, here's the thing, y'all. When we fast, it's not about doing things to God. It's about doing something to us. It doesn't change God's attitude toward us. It changes our attitude toward God. It doesn't change God's posture toward us. It changes our posture toward God. God is already fully present. God is not distracted from you or your needs. He is fully inclined to bless you. He is not waiting for you to prove yourself or perform in some way. He already loves you more than you can imagine. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. He knows you in your complete glory and ruin. He knows you better than you know yourself, and he has already declared he will bless you. Fasting doesn't change anything about God. It changes something vital about uh, see, when we fast, what we do is we create space and place to do what we're not inclined to do and the discomfort that motivates it. So when the Jewish people fasted from food, instead of preparing their food, they prepared to pray. And instead of spending that time in the mealtime, they spent that time in prayer, created space and place to do what they were not inclined to do. And it created a discomfort that drove them to do it. When they felt hunger, they said, that hunger, instead of driving me to food, is actually going to drive me to pray. It has a, a way, discomfort has a way of waking us up. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. You ever have a nice big meal, go into a nice warm place, and you're like, I'm going to pray. The next thing you know, you're like, you're going to have to meet me in my dreams, because I'm taking a nap. See, when we're comfortable, we're not motivated to pray. We're definitely not comfortable. Desperation doesn't come in comfort. That mild discomfort that we introduce into our lives is a way of reawakening us to our genuine spiritual need that prompts us to move into the presence of God in dependency. So when we fast, it creates space and place, and, and the discomfort gives us motivation. Today, we can fast from food just like they did back then, but we can fast from all kinds of things. For some of you, even more painful than fasting from food uh, might be fasting from social media. Right? I don't know about you, man, but I can pick up the phone and be scrolling and being like, when did I pick that thing up? And how long have I been here and why? I'm not seeing anything that's worth, you know what I'm saying? Like it just becomes this way of distracting ourselves. It's a way of disengaging and, and it's our pretend rest. That's what it is. Because we don't walk away rested. We walk away more tired than when we showed up. But it's our way of saying I'm overwhelmed and I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. And, and it's fasting from social media. Every time you have the impulse to pick it up, to take a look. That's your invitation back into prayer. Right? Maybe it's fasting from, from the radio to and from work. Right? Instead of getting all worked up about what idiot did what today on the national level, you can just focus. Right? No, ah, no, I'm going to have to sit in the silence, <laughs> which some of you, man, that's hard. Right? But I'm going to sit in the silence, and in this silence, I'm going to actually ask God daily for my daily bread. Right? You can fast from all kinds of things that give you space, place, and the discomfort that will motivate you to move into the presence of God. It is a purposeful cutting away and of creating a space. The late Eugene Peterson put it this way. He wasn't talking specifically about fasting, but he was talking about prayer. He put it this way. He said, I cannot be busy and pray. I cannot be inwardly rushed, distracted, or dispersed. In order to pray, I have to be paying more attention to God than to what people are saying to me. More attention to God than, than my clamoring ego, which I think is his way of saying, I need to pay more attention to God than what I'm saying to myself. Usually for that to happen, there must be a deliberate withdrawal from the noise of the day. 
a disciplined detachment from the insatiable self. A disciplined detachment from the insatiable self. Creating space, place, and allowing for the discomfort that drives us back to the presence of God. In the end, what this means is that we need to have a purposeful mindfulness of God that comes when we are fully present with God. Because God's already fully present with you. Believe it or not, he can run the entire universe and still give you 100% of his attention. You can't. So it's us creating the mindfulness to actually move into the presence of God so that we can foster genuine expectancy, attaching our hopes to our words, come with genuine persistency, allowing God to give yes or no or, or wait and not pulling back our hope and not hiding and self-protecting, and, but staying fully present and, and practicing that genuine presence where we can hear the still quiet voice, where we can respond to the, the subtle nuances, where he can actually have a conversation with us as we're having a conversation with him. All right, I'm going to wrap us up there for this morning. We'll continue this next week. Uh, we're going to share communion in a moment. An elder will introduce that. Let me pray for us as we move into a time of response. Father, we thank you that all the things we're talking about, about how we should be approaching you, you, in fact, model with us. Lord, you, you have overwhelming expectations of us. Hmm. But not the kind of expectations we often think of. You're, you're not waiting for us to prove ourselves or improve ourselves or fix ourselves. You know that the only good that's going to come is the good you plant in us, the good work you do through us. You are fixing us. You are transforming us. You are, through the resurrection of Christ, shaping us into the image of Christ. But that's your expectation, that we will one day bear the image of Christ, that we will sit at the table, the bride, cleansed and holy, And Lord, you know it's going to be true because you've promised it to be true. You will do the work. You will love us into that transformation. And we just need to learn how to respond to that love. Lord, you show up with a persistence. You chase us. You pursue us. You call us. You woo us. You will not be put off by us. As we say, go away, it's late at night, I'm tired, I don't want to do this. You never stop pursuing our souls in love. And Lord, you are fully, fully present with us. Each one of us, you love us. Not just us collectively, but us individually. You you know us, you love us, you cherish us. Lord, would you simply awaken within us a heart to respond to that kind of love? Because if our heart responds, we will want to draw near. If our heart responds, we will grow in faith. If our heart responds, we will know that that you are the one with the words of life. You are the one with the promise. And we will knock, and we will seek, and we will ask in full confidence that you're the one who will answer. Spirit, awaken within us that kind of faith. Give us this day our daily bread. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.